1: Welcome to New Books in African American Studies. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today, we interview Dr. Charlotte Fett, Associate Professor of History at Austin College in sunny Southern California, about her UNC Press published book in 2017 called Recaptured Africans, Surviving Slave Ships, Detention, and Dislocation in the Final Years of the Slave Trade. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Adam. I appreciate you having me on. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
1: Absolutely. Um, and once again, on behalf of uh, New Books and African American Studies as part of the New Books Network, we definitely thank you for uh, taking the time out. You know, it's uh, snowing out here briefly. I don't know what this is outside in, in, in uh, this cold area of Boston, but uh, it's definitely not beautiful Southern California. So we definitely appreciate your time um, this, this morning for you and this afternoon for myself.
0: All right. Thank you.
1: Can you please tell us about um, kind of your your trajectory as a scholar? How did you begin, uh, you know, your work as a historian? Yes.
0: Well, mine is a little bit of a winding path. Um, I share some commonalities with you in um, school teaching in that, I, as you said, I'm now a professor of history at Occidental College, which is a liberal arts college near downtown Los Angeles. But I was actually a biology major. It took me some time to figure out um, what I really wanted to do with my life. And I spent two years in Washington, D.C. teaching high school science. I was actually a chemistry teacher teacher. And after realizing that this wasn't really my calling, I had to work my way back um, through a master's degree at Stanford in the School of Education, where I actually did a master's thesis on those northern school teachers who went to Port Royal um, and kind of black and white women from the north with Friedman's education. And then um, I applied and got into the PhD program at Rutgers. So I'm very grateful to all my Rutgers mentors, including um, Suzanne Lebsock and Deborah Gray White uh, and Jerry Grob in History of Medicine for kind of giving me a chance. So um, I would say that I another personal detail for me, I think, that's influential in my interest in U.S.-Congo relations is that I spent my preteen years in the Democratic Republic of Congo in the decade immediately after independence. So in a kind of post-colonial or maybe neo-colonial um, setting and then returned to the United States when I was like seven or eight for the first time. Um, not that I was born there, but I was co- that was the first time I was conscious of the United States. So I kind of came into the U.S. as a, a child of white expat missionaries experiencing the United States and in its civil rights and um, all social movements, turmoil, and so uh, you know that gave me a certain perspective and an interest in the Atlantic world and in U.S. Africa relations. And then um, I, I, I would so I would also say that those things influenced my choice of dissertation subject at Rutgers on African American health and healing. I wrote my first book, Working Cures looking at healing relations as arenas of creativity and struggle and resistance and emphasizing especially the doctoring work of enslaved women on the southeastern plantations of the 19th century. Um, But when I turned to the research for this next project, I really had to broaden my scope considerably to a much more Atlantic-wide story.
1: You know, I was uh, recently um, out at Brandeis University for the uh, third annual um, African American Intellectual History Society's conference, and one thing it was for certain: everybody either went to Howard, or they went to Rutgers, or taught at Rutgers. So you know, it's you know, it, it's very much not. You know, we had a lot of conversations actually on that, um, specific to people like uh, Deborah Gray White, you know, phenomenal historian, you know, and I, a woman. Uh, 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 Plantation South, um, you know, along with folks, you know, you've had uh, uh, David Levering Lewis there, you've had uh, Jennifer Morgan, you've had so many great scholars uh, come through there as, as students, but also as professors. And you can see in the um, phenomenal work that, you know, students like yourself, or well, students formerly and presently as professors, um, have have done in the academy, um, in, in the last really 25 to 30 years. So that's really kudos to you and everyone who comes out of that program. So, um, and you like I said in, in the work.
0: Yes, uh, it it was really and became after I left, continued to be a place where uh, I think all of a lot of the Atlantic World Scholarship was a center there. Um, and, and women's history, African-American history, just. Um, a wonderful place. And then being so close to being right in that near New York, near Princeton, a lot of uh, collaboration. And even with, with Princeton, we had reciprocal, we were able to take classes. So I was able to take a class with Nell Painter uh, when she had newly arrived at Princeton, you know, in a graduate seminar of six students with her. Um, So that was a, it was a real privilege for me to have that graduate school experience.
1: That's saying something Was you know, New Jersey is seen as like the stepchild to New York um, as far as most other things. But when it comes to historians, I'd like to say that they've they, they've come out um, very much on their own and and show New York what they got, you know, cooking over there in, 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 New, in Princeton and also, I guess, New Brunswick, uh, New Jersey as well. Um, and so specifically uh, getting into the book, um, one of the things that I really enjoyed about this book was that um you start to learn more and more that, you know, you have these particular narratives about the starting and the ending of certain institutions and and certain things in history. And specifically about, in this case, the slave trade. Right. And how, you know, I've I had I've, I've had uh, Shawande Musa Kim on the show uh, uh, in late 2017, and and now having yourself on here, and you're really seeing a lot of you know a lot more studies in in the last few years specific about the slave trade that builds on people like uh, Marcus Rediger and and, and Steph- was it Stephanie Smallwood as well and others. But the great thing is you're starting to learn more that a lot of these systems did not end. You know they continued well past their supposed uh, expiration date that no it was very much uh, poisonous well after that date and it kept on going yeah
0: that's absolutely right and you know there there are a couple things there one is that we use this magical date of 1807 1808 depending on the bill passed bill effective for the US and Britain abolishing the slave trade but there were many countries that or colonial settings where the spanish the portuguese The French, where the the slave trade continued to be legal long after that. So it's not like even in terms of the law, everything shifted in 1807 or 1808. So that's one thing. And then the other is even after it became illegal um, throughout all of the slaving European uh, colonies and, and nations, The the trade continued as an illegal traffic in human beings. Um, That's what what my book deals with. Uh, But, you know, I have the the figure that if you you look at the very latest um, ban on the slave trade, so when all abolition bans had been passed, Around 1836 or so, there's even there are 1.3 million Africans who are still enslaved, even after that, up till the last known slaving journey being 1866. And then we're not even counting the kinds of other kinds of bonded and forced labor uh, that Kick in and develop, like the coolie trade uh, from South, from from Asia, from China and India. Um, so this is a, a long and complicated history in the nineteenth century.
1: Right, and and you know I think about uh, the work of David Eltis and and folks with the um uh, uh, they have the online database, right, and and I think that you know especially when it comes to teaching the slave trade and teaching um, about what. You know the trade actually meant um, in in bodies and, and also in you know insurance and, and in all these different capacities. Um, it's why I think it's still um, a place that you know it's a vibrant area of study for for uh, important reasons. And um, and I think that also what you do is that because your work is specific to the time frame after. Um, the slave trade was supposed to have ended with the uh, British and the uh, U.S. uh, um, involvement uh, in it, that it goes to show that, you know, when you look at work like the Amistad and others, there were other cases that were Amistad-like or that were specifically just different than what happened with the Amistad with particular uh, differences. But it goes to show that in in legal limbo, in a space where you know, Black folks, you know, uh, uh, antebellum Northern Black folks were not free in the sense that, you know, you look at the work of uh, Elizabeth Studer Pryor at Smith um, and her work about uh, the mobility of of colored travelers, it showed that, you know, even those folks were not truly free. So what would have happened to people who come from, um, from, from, at, from Africa, um, after the slave trade, like what is their legal status? And I think that's a, one of the cool parts about your book is that you, you kind of get to see, not kind of, you absolutely explicitly get to see, um, you know, what their stat, what their statuses were, um, in, in the United States.
0: Yes. Um, Boy, you said so many things there that I want to respond to. Um, so I, I will go. I want to go back to the digital humanities issue and the Voyages database, um, and because that that collaborative work that developed over two decades or more um, has really changed what what we're able to know um, from the macro level down to the individual ship an individual person level. And then in the field of of recaptured Africans or liberated Africans, I'd like to talk about that terminology a little bit um, too before we go very much farther. But in terms of that, there is a whole digital humanities project that I'm part of um, in a minor way that is uh, spearheaded by uh, Henry Lovejoy called Liberated Africans. And that website deals exactly with the courts That made the decisions on the the ships that had been seized as to whether they were illegally enslaved people and then would be, then they've had to be dispersed in some way, um, either as laborers in the Caribbean or in special liberated African villages or settled in Sierra Leone. Um, So there's a whole history there that the British story dominates um, because they were the main. A suppressing naval force on the sea, but that involves Brazil and Cuba. Um, and I tell them the U.S. story, which is related, and I try to set my story within the broader diaspora of liberated Africans. Um, but then, so, okay, so that's about the digital humanities and the legal, the legal status. But I also think that your point about um, Black unfreedom, uh, Black mobility is very important because the the conditions that recaptured Africans lived under—a kind of this legal limbo, this in-between space—was um, also related to the kinds of suspicion and difficulties that legally free persons of African descent encountered in just traveling around the Atlantic, Europe, uh, the Caribbean. Um, there, there was there were these patchwork zones. Of freedom and unfreedom and all, everything in between.
1: Right. And and that's why I think that, you know, de- defining terms, uh, you know, it's very important. So I definitely appreciate that, that hold up that you, that you did. Um, because, you know, defining terms, you know, is very much important when you try to get students or, or listeners like we have on the channel here, uh, to really understand and know what uh, these particular terms mean. Because, you know, they're, they're you know, Shoot, there are scholars that are still trying to define what in the what in the heck uh, unfreedom versus freedom actually is, um, especially in the context of laws. And so you see people like uh, Martha Jones's work uh, that's coming out later this year about uh, race and rights and antebellum America. Um, and so this is a very, you know, I think, and this is the coolest part is like, you know, there's so much work that's being put in right now that sometimes I've, I've met with people and they're like, I almost want to wait for to 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 put in my book proposals because there's something else coming out that I might need to work with, um, which is uh, which I think is. I, guess, I would say, you know, as someone who's unauthored, I, th- I would like to think that that's maybe a, a not exactly the worst problem to have. Uh, <laughs> but um...
0: no. And in fact, this book took me, I, I would I'm embarrassed to say it, 15 years, I would say to write and and it started all the way back with a document that I encountered while I was actually doing my dissertation research. And then it sat in my mind and grew into this. But it in that course of that time, the all the digital search engines for newspapers and print culture came online. The uh, the databases you know, about the slave trade came online. And then all of this literature that you're talking about. And I do have to give a shout out to Roseanne Adderley, who was one of the first people to really write a book length, um, and Monica Schuler as well, book length studies of uh, liberated Africans in the Caribbean setting and starting to explore some of those issues of, uh, of, of a kind of uh, in-between area of the medical crisis and the psychic crisis that liberated Africans were in in their early times of resettlement and all these questions of exile and homeland and identity in the Atlantic world um, Roseanne Adderley's book New Negroes from Africa really uh, d- talked about quite I think it's a 2006 book kind um, of set a standard for how we can talk about the human history of this not just the ships and the courts and the traders. So that's one thing. Um, And so I really benefited from having a historiography develop around me, in front of me. Um, And as I was writing this, I had more and more literature to be able to contextualize my own primary research in.
1: And and you're right. You know, the the huge, huge work that's happening with um with print culture and and with uh historic newspapers being added to online databases, you know, it, it just makes, you know, scholars like us, you know, really, really happy because it allows us to be able to do work. You know, we can do work, you know, while chilling in our house with a cup of coffee at, at you know, well for me it would be two in the morning, just sitting out, you know, chilling and just like Going through hundreds of different newspapers um, and not having to go to, you know, the the uh, standard archive, which is nothing wrong with that. I definitely still push people to do that, but also understanding, like, you know, if, <laughs> as money is dwindling in the academy, for especially for students, uh, you know, we have to be able to find, you know, innovative ways to be able to conduct the same work. And so, di- digital uh, archives um, definitely allow for that to happen. And it's great because it allows people to continue the work that they do and improve their work too over the course of time. Um, that That's
0: correct. And that there is a, a small counter argument I guess you can make to that, although I think on the whole it's... A wonderful development. And that is that early on in this research, I would say, sort of late 90s, early 2000s, when I was doing some of the newspaper work, I was in the UCLA room just grinding through the microfilm and making copies of all the things. And it was because I was looking at whole pages of newspapers that I was able to see some connections, especially when it came to Charleston. Um, between things that weren't actual stories. They weren't actual stories on the Echo Recaptives, but they were ways that the Charleston citizens were responding to them as a form of entertainment. And I saw those things because I was looking at the whole sheet and scrolling through the newspaper. So maybe there's a little bit of that 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 we miss when the um, algorithm or the search engine is feeding
1: us the the stories. Um, And so specific to this, Specific to your book, right, Um, something that I was very much interested in was, um, you know, charting the course of how really the, you know, how how did America start to change its feeling, um, if at all even, you know, about recaptive Africans? Like, what was their, like, because what it seemed like from your book was, like, they were, they were a, in a certain way, a very useful uh, a political football um, for for both sides, you know, the abolitionists, but also the pro slavery element as well, um, because you get to see people right by this time. Effectively, all of the people that are enslaved in the United States were born in the United States, and you know they ancestrally right down the line were obviously you know African in origin, but they didn't have much. As far as personal experiences with Africans themselves, um, especially as the specifically really as the 19th century pushes on into that 1830s, 1840s and 1850s time frame. Um, and, and I think that was, to me, one of the most important areas. So could you uh, speak to that uh, briefly, if you may?
0: Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, so so first I just want to make a short remark about the terms. Um, my book is called Recaptured Africans. That was the term that was used in the United States. Elsewhere in the Atlantic world, especially in Britain and in the mixed commission courts, of course there were um, Portuguese and Spanish terms as well, but in English the phrase was liberated Africans. That phrase I did not see used much in the United States. And I think it was because it provoked the slavery controversy too much to talk about liberated Africans. And so um, recaptured Africans became for me, a, a. it's also the word that was used, but it is a way to express the kind of unfreedom that this group of people still had. So, um, and then I use the word recaptives as a more modern um version of recaptured Africans. So that's just for people to know where this term is used and probably why. Um, And then how... uh, I think you you are really correct that they become a a political football. Um, It made me think of, well, this is the case, you may remember Elian Gonzalez, who was the young Cuban boy who came into my, and so on a mass scale, he he was made a a vehicle for all of these U.S. debates. And in this case, um, there are three different groups of people who have vested interests in the Persons and bodies of recaptives. And that is one, an, an abolitionist perspective that might be um, represented by the New York Free Black activists I talk about. Um, the other are the pro slavery people um, situated especially in Charleston around the movement to reopen the slave trade that is concurrent to the echo recaptives actually being brought into um, the Ch- Charleston Harbor. And then the third are the colonizationists. And those are the Either the moderate pro-slavery, moderate, uh, moderate anti-slavery people who are also interested in colonization in Africa, and so all three of those groups are are placing arguments and meaning upon um, the what should happen to this group of uh, you know several hundreds of. Of, of free captives who come into the U.S. in 1858
1: and 1860. Right. And, and you know, that point that you made about, um, you know, the, the potential reopening of the slave trade in the 1850s um, is something that's really such, I think that's one of the more intriguing uh, areas of, you know, 1850s discourse um, is that, the South isn't booming, you know, they're making money. They're trying to, they're trying to expand, right. They're trying to go to Cuba, which apparently America has been trying to go into Cuba for a very long time. Um, along with um, going into a uh, place like Panama, Nicaragua and other places in central and South America. Um, so seeing that, you know, pro-slavery uh, foreign policy, which worked like Matthew Carper uh, involved in. And so, um, it's very intriguing work, and so you know, you you brought up even, um, you know, what what was the you know reaction? You spoke about it briefly with the uh, with uh, the print culture and, and and you know, reading the microfilm as as you know, seeing the different reactions from folks in South Carolina, but specifically, what how did folks in in the South right? How did people? You know, in the South and also thinking about, you know, uh, federalism, too, when it comes to, um, you know, the, the the usage of the U.S. Navy in, in this work, too. How did, you know, those factions um, coincide? Um, and, and also, um, how, how is there potentially um, any friction uh, between them? Because they're not only a political football as far as their recaptive Africans, but their bodies could be used again, potentially, right?
0: Yes. Yes, right. Um, so, uh, this this pertains to chapter one and chapter two of the book because uh, what you know what I seek to do at the heart of the book are this group of recaptives from four different ships, one that come that is seized by the U.S. Navy. Each All these ships are on their way to Cuba. They're fueled with American money, but they're on their way to the Cuban slave market. And they're intercepted by the U.S. Navy in 1858. Uh, the Echo is brought into the Charleston Harbor. And in 1860, the Wildfire William and Bogota are brought into the Key West. So um, one step backward that I, that I would need to do is to situate what the law was at that time that then provoked these issues around federalism and ardent pro reactionary pro-slavery. So the, after the abolition of the slave trade by U.S. law, there was great debate about what to do if suspicious ships were seized and enslaved people were found aboard. And from 1807 until 1819, the federal government left it up to the states to decide what to do. And so even Du Bois writes about this as well in in his book that um, we have this enormous uh, irony of liberated people who've been released from the holds of slave ships who are taken into Southern states and then sold on the southern auction to pay, to, and the proceeds of the sales of their bodies go to um, pay the the people who uh, the prize money for people who had captured the ships. And um, this of course is an enormous contradiction. And so by 1819, as the colonization, the American Colonization Society had been formed for a couple of years by that time, they had a lot of influence in Congress and they rewrite the law to say, it will be that the recaptive Africans released from the holds of slave ships will go into the custody of U.S. Marshals. So they take it to the federal level, but they mandate a removal This word removal is very interesting because it reflects the U.S. response, white response as a whole, to the distrust and suspicion of having uh, having free people of African descent in the United States. So the 1819 law mandates that the president, whoever's president at the time, will set the conditions to remove this group of people. They say the quote is beyond the limits of the United States. And that becomes Liberia. So by the time we get to the Uh, ships and the people that I'm talking about, there is a federal law that puts those recaptive Africans in the custody of the U.S. Marshal and that uh, mandates the U.S. government at the federal level find a way to put people on ships and send them to Liberia where they are apprenticed to the um, Black American, American Liberian settlers there. So they take a new subordinate position and that's toward the end of the book. Um, and this is something in the context of the late 1850s, with uh, sectionalism, with secessionism, with um, all of the the fervor over the um, the Fugitive Slave Act, um, Kansas, Nebraska, all of this stuff is coming to a head, and the people, especially um, an individual that also Walter Johnson also writes about in, in, in his um, book, when he's talking about pro-slavery empire, Leonidas Spratt uh, in Charleston, they want to use the 300 or so people of the young people, the, um, of the echo to repossess them in order to show the, the, pro- the predominance of state Law and states' rights over the federal government, and in order to um, kind of make real manifest their claim that slavery is the best institution, the fitting institution for these um, recaptive men, women, and children. Um, and so, the way that they they respond, both in the newspapers and in their actual and their court actions. Um, is to try to get possession of this group of, of recaptives, but they are under federal guard at Fort Sumter. You now, I call this the first battle of Fort Sumter, um, and they are, be- they are behind Marine Guard at Fort Sumter. And so um, there is uh, a, just a real political struggle at, uh, in the courts and in the court of public opinion through the newspapers and speeches.
1: Right and 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 I and I love uh uh what you said with uh with uh that being the first uh battle of Fort Sumter because you know most people think that Fort Sumter is just you know there's nothing going on there uh before uh, the civil war but no this this book right here Recaptured captured affians really says uh that nope nope that's not the Paul Hor- Harvey story of you know the rest of the story uh, uh that that I grew up <laughs> listening to from NPR uh so shouts out to NPR. Um and so you know that that is I think really interesting because you know the fact that the recaptured Africans are are used in such a way, and also this is a time frame of you know, you know, the 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 dogger types, you know, the the racial uh, uh science that, that's so much emerging in this period too. Um, you know, you, you have you know the dogger types come about you know, about a decade earlier, but they're still, you know, a rising, um they're still rising. And so the how people conceive of who, you know, what enslavement looks like and also what enslaved people look like as well, specific to what do Africans even look like, um, is all, you know, uh submerged within this um area of time. And and I think it's why sometimes when I think about enslavement, um and trying to think about you know what is what's my visual you know what what's my visual memory of of the uh, of the institution you know from print culture and visual culture um you know recaptive uh or recaptured Africans rather um, is really something that I've kind of seen my whole life. You know, it's almost like going by as an African-American, going by a cotton uh, plantation. And yet I've never picked a a bill of cotton. But, you know, when I drove by one one time, I you know, everybody in the car froze. You know, yeah, we never did because it's it's the it's the 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 innate memory that's within you. Um, And so um, going further from that, you know, something that was also interesting, too, uh, you know, we mentioned offline about uh, my family origins and where I grew up uh was uh, born um and partially raised in South Florida um and realizing the importance of somewhere like Key West um as well was something that was very intriguing to me um as far as the recaptive africans that went through that particular um within that particular uh 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 i guess city or or town i'm not sure what it was designated at the time but within that particular area down in the in the very bottom of Florida
0: That's right that's right and and uh, you know that that was just two summers later um, in in 1860 and Key, Key West was really a crossroads of um, all kinds of Caribbean and US and Gulf uh, travel and maritime world and you know it was a place um, that, I think you you there was a New Books interview with um, on Pensacola and on routes to, to Freedom Matthew Clavin is that right? Yeah, and and you know Key West was like that as well in that there were attempts by enslaved people in Key West to flee to the Bahamas um, to 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 flee into uh, free areas of the, the British Caribbean. By boat, so we have different kinds of uh, freedom-seeking and routes going on there. But in that summer, um, kind of late spring, with these three seized ships brought into Key West, there was also an admiralty court in Key West, and so um, suspicious ships could be um, uh, uh, determined to be to could be confiscated and declared to be prize ships. And then um, there was a, a group. Of of people who the numbers you know I have these tables in my in my book but the numbers are actually declining daily as you go along um, but but there are about um, uh, about fourteen hundred Africans seized on these three ships and they're settled in a kind of a makeshift camp near the federal Fort Taylor that's on the southern uh, kind of south. Western um, point of of Key West, and they have to, you know, all a, a makeshift hospital, um, doctors, and also again the press as a as just as a, a kind of a voyeurism that comes in to see. Uh, they're, they're set within the ethnography of the time and a lot of popular interest, and so. Um, you have this twin story of enormous suffering and death and um, alienation. And at the same time, they, there's a spectacle being made of, of, of recaptives in the popular press. And because illustrated newspapers were had just come into being in the mid-50s, um, this is one of the, the 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 key West story, especially, was heavily illustrated. So people actually saw images as far away as California or New York or Wisconsin um, saw images of the wildfire recaptives in Harper's Weekly. And I, I mentioned that I had begun this through curiosity about an original document that I had seen at... Uh, the the Virginia Historical Society that was a log of a Virginia physician who had been appointed as a U.S. agent to travel with the shipmates, the African recaptive shipmates of the wildfire who had been put on a second ship for Liberia. So, you know, when I first saw that, I really just didn't even understand the context. That made me curious. But the next document that really cemented this as a story for me was seeing the Harper's weekly full, it's a it's a large illustration, about three quarters of a page of all of the young people. And these are really, um, we haven't yet talked about the, the youth of the recaptives and what that meant for children and teenagers to uh, be in this uh, severe Atlant- twice crossing the Atlantic um, in the midst of death, that kind of experience. But the wildfire then portrays that. And I think many listeners would actually, if they, if they are interested in issues of slavery or the slave trade, have probably seen an online image of the wildfire, which is often used as a kind of generic depiction of middle passage. But that is historically inaccurate in that they uh, the the daguerreotype was was taken at the bottom of the engraving. It says it's from a daguerreotype, but I was unable to find that. I'm still interested in contacting Harpers and trying to see if we can find. Is there an actual photograph behind that engraving? But that that was taken as the wildfire was towed to the government wharf in Key West, and uh, then. If indeed it was based on a derotype, a photographer actually took that picture as, um, as all, as these people in a state of severe emotional and physical crisis were displayed uh, aboard the deck, um, for them to document.
1: Right. And, and you t- you spoke earlier about spectacle, right? You know, the, you know, the spectacle of, you know, slavery, the spectacle of, of capture, um, in, in, in large ways has been historical, uh, continuity when it comes to, um, uh, those of African descent going all the way through, um, you know, the civil going from, you know, this period through the civil war and the civil rights movement and, 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 and and really the, you know, the lynching era as well. Um, looking at how spectacles, um, and, and, and even now with, uh, you know uh first person accounts on on cell phones of of uh of death of african people of of those of african descent um and so what it shows is like there's a historical continuity there um which is uh profound uh i would like to say it's very profound and unfortunate
0: yes i really could not agree more um i do see the relevance of this story for Um, white America's struggle to acknowledge the value of Black life and to, you know, the fact that this, um, the fact of of so many children um, also heightens the poignance of this experience. And in many ways, the racialization of these recaptives really did not allow observers to understand and to perceive children in the way that um, white childhood was being made sentimental and precious in the 19th century, um, and we, even though the press acknowledged the presence of youth, they did speak of it. But um, understanding how this illegal slave trade put in motion um, so many uh, so many youth, it's tragic for the adults as well. I, I'm uh, not belittling that, but. Uh, really did not recognize this as a, a traffic in children in in many ways, and I think this is something that the scholarship on liberated Africans Atlantic wide, the whole diaspora of liberated Africans, is um, working still to understand what it what it meant uh, in terms of responding to that kind of of uh, captivity and and global displacement, and then what it meant. For youth and young young people to be able to rebuild their lives in these new settings of apprenticeship, so there there was one um, really caught that in terms of spectacle, one of the phrases in Harper's really caught my attention, and I and I built some analysis around it in the book, and that they. Start by speaking of the suffering, but then there's a phrase where they say, notwithstanding their suffering, they're such an interesting site. I'm kind of paraphrasing there, but there is a literal phrase, notwithstanding their suffering. And there's this pivot to how how, um, fascinating and exotic and interesting this group of people is. Um, And I think that's that pivot and that racialization that... Diminishes the value, the, the the full significance of the life and the life experiences of these recaptives.
1: I think one of the coolest parts, or excuse me, cool might not be the right word, but the most fascinating, rather, uh, parts of of, of the of the book was learning about, like you said, how many children, right? How many children were on, you know, the ships, and and how scared. Honestly, they must have been. Um, And how you know how and you spoke about the media earlier as well about how the complicity of the media in in you know some of these accounts and also how they how they at times did try to mitigate um, that as well. But um, you know the 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 people that were really out front trying to really. Uh, uh, work on behalf of the recaptives on the abolitionist side, you know, you spoke before about, um, uh, folks, the, 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 abolitionist community in New York, which I thought was so profound. Um, because I think a lot of times we get enamored with folks in Philadelphia and from where I am in Boston that, you know, every now and again, the folks in New York don't, I, I think get enough just do. And folks like, a uh, 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 Pennington, um, uh, in New York, I think is one of the more intriguing folks, especially because, hey, you know, he got a doctorate of uh, of uh, honorary doctorate of divinity in uh, was it the University of Heidelberg or somewhere out there in Germany. So, mm-hmm.
0: yes, absolutely. Um, and I think that Pennington was someone who was especially attuned to the uh, the crisis of recaptives as a whole, and um, of children in in particular, um, you mentioned earlier. About the the racial science, um, and especially in the chapter on Charleston, that 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 comes up. But there are many pro slavery people who are arguing for this theory of polygenesis of separate origins, that they're actually different human species. And one of the reasons why it was important for me to have this the chapter, uh, which is the, the fourth chapter on the New York activists, and specifically focusing on James Pennington, is that. Um, I see in this engagement with, against the illegal slave trade and Pennington on behalf of recaptives, a kind of human rights um, discourse that's that's seeking to counter, a, a real counterpoint to that pro-slavery polygenesis type of rhetoric that's coming out of the um, the, the, the South, uh, the especially the reactionary pro-slavery South. It's also a counter to the colonizationist discourse as well. Um, but they are actually using the phrase, Pennington was giving their advertisements in newspapers for his lecture on human rights. And part of their human in the human rights had to do with the unity of the human uh, the human species and that all humans um, have have these rights. So James Pennington, by virtue of being a a uh, former fugitive slave from Maryland. Um, the fugitive blacksmith is his slave narrative. Um, he had come to New York. He had really rebuilt his life. Um, and, you know, I think that he understood what it was to be a young person. He escaped um, as he came of age. He was a very young man when he escaped and went through all the trials and tribulations of getting up to New York and Brooklyn. Um, and so, I think he understood what it was to be alone and hungry and scared and physically suffering and, uh, spiritually and psychically also, um, in trauma. And so when he, and he also had had experience, we were talking about this offline as well with the Amistad group in, uh, both through their trials, but especially when they were in uh, Farmington, Connecticut, and awaiting and arranging their return um, to the Mende Coast area. And that was in uh, around 1840, 39 to 41. So as a younger man, Pennington had had experience with, with them. And so when the news about Key West comes into the newspaper, uh, he responds with uh, several, several letters, uh, two letters, to a white newspaper called The World that was just getting its start. It becomes um, important later on uh, in journalistic history, but it's just getting its start in 1860. And he argues uh, that really this whole slave trade suppression is a racket. And he says the Navy's making money, everybody's making money off the recaptives, but they aren't looking at them and thinking about justice. For these people, as displaced people, and he, what he argues for is um, apprenticing them briefly with free families in the north, kind of getting them back on their feet. And he has a, a Christianizing, infl- you know, a mission. Idea behind this as well, um, and and then figuring out a way to repatriate them to their own homes. Liberia was the home of none of the this group. The recaptives who I talk about either come from West Central Africa, um, from the Congo River Congo region, or um, a little bit south from Rwanda, or they come from um, West Africa in the uh, the region of uh, either Benin, Dahomey, um, parts of Yoruba town. So they're west. No one is from Liberia. So this is not a home going as some uh, um, white government officials think it is. And Pennington knows this because he's a world traveler and he understands different geographies of Africa. So all of this his life experience that causes him to to weigh in um, and to to call for justice and to call for a focus on the recaptives themselves um, he also has experience with three boys who in another kind of mind-boggling story have stowed away on a, a slave ship that had landed in Cuba and offloaded um, it's. Human cargo. And so these three boys had actually hid under some planks and only been found in Charleston when naval members were cleaning out the ship, getting ready to transfer it over as a prize ship. They then are brought to New York as potential witnesses against the crew. And Pennington goes to visit them in the jail. So there are boys who are between eight and 12 years old, and they're being kept in a jail. Uh, and Pennington goes to visit them there and tries to communicate with them. So, both in his newspaper editorializing and in his direct co- relationship with these young boys, he um, is is involved in the illegal slave trade in advocating on behalf of the people of the of the of the human <laughs> cost of the victims of the of the trade themselves.
1: And th- and that's huge because because. Um... Hennington is, like you said, he was a world traveler, um, and so because of that, he has the opportunity to truly understand the ramifications in ways that many other abolitionists, even um, and definitely pro slavery folks, uh, didn't have. You know the the depth of understanding that, you know, and I and I think this goes to even how people talk about Africa in general for even much up until our present moment where people think that you know Africa is monolithic right or even the thought of you know Africa's actual size on 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 uh, on geographical maps right and, and it has been shown like the actual uh scale of Africa on, on on maps has actually been degraded over the course of time which is interesting as well um and, and and so you know like you said like you you have people coming from all you know so many different um areas of the on the African continent you know with totally different you know styles of religious practices and, and just overall uh, lifestyles and yet you believe that taking them to Liberia right and designating them as you call here um Congos if I if I'm getting that correct mm-hmm. um. Mm-hmm. You know, um, is going to constitute them as like a home going right. You know, we're bringing them back to to their homeland <laughs> when, in reality, they could not be anywhere further from where they are originally from. Um, and so, you know, that part to me was the most important. And also, and can you speak to this um, as a particular question? Um, once people got to Liberia, right? What were their reactions? You know, over the course of time of the people who are more I don't know how to really say, but the people that would be more constituted as native, not really native, right, but the people that in uh that 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 had been there a certain amount of time prior to the recaptives specific to your book coming um into the fray.
0: Right, right. Those are such important questions. Um, So I want to just go back just for a minute to the issue of the diversity of Africa and the many origins of people who were enslaved. And in one of the central um, organizing principles in this book is that idea of the shipmate. And so within the history of the slave trade, Um, many scholars have written about from way back, have have written about the importance of the shipmate bond, of people who may not even have been from the same hometowns or homelands and and may even have not been of the same language, but often that was the way people could bond, um, who form a bond through their experience through the the Middle Passage. And, And later, people who are shipmates in all over the Americas, um, sponsor each other in baptism, or they they are godparents to others. So this shipmate bond is very important. So for me, I quickly realized that once, um, especially when there were multiple ships coming into Key West, they were actually put in shipmate groups onto ships. So you have a group of people who have traveled with each other. Both in middle passage and then in recaptive passage, if we want to call it that, and so what this did was, so out of Key West, there are shipmate groups that are from West Central Africa, and there are shipmate groups from um, the from in, uh, in in Benin, um, who are called the Dahomeans, um, even though they weren't necessarily uh, of that. They many of them were Yoruba, and so uh, when they get into to, when they arrive um, in liberia the 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 group from Uida from West Africa many many more adults in that group their their demography was different, and so they had a different set of of resources to draw upon um, interestingly, that group on the Bogota who were from from West Africa were very closely aligned in history with the Clotilda, who Silvian Diouf talks about um, the slave ship that came into uh, Mobile in Alabama and that uh, then established after Emancipation, Africa Town. They really passed through the Barracoons in Ouida around the same time, the people who I studied and the people who, so there's a difference. One ship was intercepted and they became recaptives. One ship was not and was smuggled into the U.S. So these are these contingent destinies of people in the slave trade. But that group in Liberia actually resisted being separated and resisted the, there was a, some younger people out of that group were apprenticed. There was actually a, a conflict, a physical conflict where people were shot. And, and the president of Liberia, Stephen Benson, had to go and reassure that group. And they ended up insisting in being able to stay and live together. The group of people who were from West Central Africa who really are responsible for recaptors being called Congos in in Liberia at the time? Um, were so many of them heavily youth, and they become apprenticed. So when you say how do folks who are native respond to them, there are two other groups in Liberia who they are interacting with. One is the group of of Black American settlers, so African American settlers who are sometimes called Afri- Americo Liberians, who um, who are have established individual farms and they're looking for labor. Some of them even have sugar plantations. Uh, some of them have coffee plantations. And so the records of the US agent for recaptured Africans actually shows the dispersal of hundreds of recaptives across Liberia in this period of uh, between 1858 and especially 1860 and 1861. Um, People, famous people who we know from from African-American history, um, like uh, Alexander Crummell, for example, talk about this and speak about it as the Congo inundation, because there were so many recaptives, not just from the U.S., uh, from those camps, but also intercepted right off of the West Central African coast. So they were almost... 6,000 who were brought into, I'm sorry, almost 5,000 brought into Liberia between 1858 and 1861. And so there's the tiny settler population who was apprenticing them, and then there are the indigenous groups of Liberia as well. And so I wasn't sure who you meant when you said, how do native Because there are the indigenous Vi, Gola, et cetera. And then you there are there, the Americo Liberians who are the ones who are taking in these recaptives and attempting to um, convert them to Christianity, to uh, educate them, to bring them into that particular culture of Americo Liberian life.
1: Right. And thank you for that clarification. Um, because right, you know, uh, it's it's interesting the use of the term indigenous, uh, at least, you know, as someone who studies American history or as an Americanist, I guess it would be the more classic term. Um, typically I, I, I hear that term being used, you know, in, in um as far as like Native American groups. And so obviously, you know, it has a um presence in in uh, in the work of Africanists as well, and specific folks who are uh, studying and intersecting and in transnational works like yourself, um, dealing with uh, folks like in Liberia um, who are um, indigenous to um, to the land of Liberia. But but thank you for that because it, it's definitely an interesting, um, it's an intriguing uh, uh, juxtaposition as far as you know the national discourse. Um, in Liberia, because you know it's they they declare independence um bef- uh, within the time frame um that that you speak of, and so it's 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 intriguing because folks like Crummel and other folks um like uh, like Delaney late uh, around this period too, and other folks who are emigrationists uh, who are, who are pushing for for those of African descent to to not only come to the come to um areas in West Africa coinciding with Liberia, but also you know the Christianizing element that people like uh, Sylvester Johnson um, uh, speak about with their their work on um, Christian colonialism. Um, and so it's it's definitely something that's intriguing that's really made me uh, think about what because some of my work is involved with uh, uh, anti-colonization and and what you know what were the actual motives of those who were vying for, um um uh african american emigration um and and really i think the part of your uh, the overall scheme of your book i think is is remarkable because it allows people to realize like what happened to the folks who were taken back you know to africa but also specific to the part of they're not going to where they originally were you know where they're actually from
0: right that's that's right uh, and it's such a complicated history because the way that Liberia gets colonized and then becomes independent and these different groups um, and the s- political splits between the, those who arrive as emigrants as or recaptives and then those who are already on the land, indigenous, as I put it, those political splits erupt in the Liberian. They have legacies directly down into the Liberian civil wars of uh, the 1990s.
1: Right, and um, one one question I do have uh, in in the few minutes that we do have left, what was the the because as you said this, this is a very complex story and trying to weave everything together, um, you know it, it's it, it's it's a lot it's a it's it's a big undertaking. So if you don't mind if you don't mind the question, what was the particular if you, was there a particular challenge that was the largest in this particular project? um, in, in, in creating this in creating this work?
0: Yes, that's very easy to answer. And it's the lack of first person testimony from the actual recaptives I speak about. There is that testimony through, um, narratives published in Sierra Leone, other people, other Africans who experienced this phenomenon of enslavement and recaptivity in the British system, who then, um, you know, be, be, be published in English language narratives. But uh, that's what I had would have wished for because people would appear in the records in very intriguing ways, um, in important ways, but then disappear. And so it was difficult to follow them. Um, and it was also, uh, I would love to have had their voices.
1: Right. And, and, and you know, that's why I think um, the, the recovery work um that that you conducted with um with with your book I thought was really profound because you know there's always gonna be something that you wish you had. You know that as as a as a as we talk about so offline I'm getting my PhD work soon, you know, and I think that's one of the areas that a lot of scholars have told me is like there's always or, or a lot of times there's gonna be something that you wish you had. But still doing you know, but still weaving, you know, the thread of the story together um, is still something that's important. And, and that importance is really seen um, with your book, Recaptured Africans. Um, because I think the work of uh, uh, really the larger works of, that that deal with those of African descent, a lot of it is recovery work. A lot of it is using, you know, uh, uh, a lot of times there's scarcity of records um, and being able to deploy different methodology to really put together this story, I think is one of the most profound things I see in a lot of works today. Um, And your work is definitely within that mold as well. So definitely appreciate you for it.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I do look at it as a work of recuperation and hoping that, you know, I can put out there what I found and then maybe someone coming along and find a new set of sources that will shed additional light. But just making this story visible, we place it along other kinds of stories like the stories of the enslaved, the stories of free black people in various areas of the Americas, the stories of the fugitive, the stories of the maroon. And now, you know, we're beginning to understand the stories of recaptured people as well.
1: Right. And, you know, we all play a, we all play a role and we all have, you know, a certain amount of time on the earth to be able to Conduct the work that we want, and so you know you, you're definitely um, your work is definitely in there, and and making um, making a lot of great great uh, um, leaps, you know, in in the scholarship of uh, of middle passage studies, and and also um, in the study of, of really the, the the slave ship as well, um, and so um, like I said, in the few minutes that we do have, um, if you don't mind, what you know that you know now that this work is you know, uh, uh, is, is, is published and, and out to the world. Um, you know, what's next on the agenda for you?
0: Well, let's see. I have a lot of smaller things that, I, that are, that are going on and then trying to think about what's the next big project. Um, I, I, I do some work with the colored conventions project that you are familiar with at the university of, of Delaware, the digital humanity.
1: Yes, I yeah. am.
0: And then, um, <laughs> I also have, uh, a, a, an essay, that's coming out. Um, So I'm just, you know, doing the finishing parts on that, on a volume on liberated Africans that comes out of a conference at York University that was looking at the entire diaspora of liberated Africans. And in that essay, I tried, I, I spent more time with the phenomenon of of in, recaptive youth in Liberia running away from their apprenticeships and the idea that some of them may have really understood themselves as still being in slavery. So uh, that, that essay is kind of looking again at the Liberia end and looking uh, more closely at the resistance of especially young people to their apprenticeship situations. So that there's that. Um, it, I, I'm also, I've been a, a contributor recently to the fifth edition of Through Women's Eyes, a women's history textbook, um, working through the, the, the proofs on the early chapters there. And then um, for a long-term project, I, I have, I really have my question, but not my plan uh, yet, and that is that I'm continuing to be interested in relationships in the 19th century uh, between African-Americans and West Central Africa. Um, At the ASALA conference last year, I I was able to uh, put together a panel and be on a panel of people who are all considering 19th century black relations to, uh, to Congo and the idea of Congo. And usually we start that history around the 1880s with William Shepard and um, anti-colonial resistance to Leopold. But I think, you know, Pennington is also already engaged with Congo youth. And so um, I, I'm interested in that full span of from the period of slavery to the period of early colonization in Africa of, uh, of that circuit, U- U.S., uh, Americas, and, and uh, Congo area.
1: Very good. Well, hey, um, you know, if 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 you ever get another, you know, uh book length work um anytime soon, you know, you, you you know where to find me and you know we'll we'll be comrades in arms uh working with the Colored Conventions Project too. So um I, I'm definitely uh I'm definitely looking forward to um all of the work that you have on tap uh going forward in, in your career. And uh, you know, I definitely am glad that you came on and you know, that you were able to uh, speak to not only myself, but to the wider uh, audience audiences, uh, new books in African-American studies, uh, uh, very, very valuable subscribers and listeners um, and future subscribers and listeners. And so um, thank you for your time. And um, once again, today we've had the opportunity, folks, to be able to listen to uh, Dr. Charlotte Fett, uh, associate professor of history at Occidental College in sunny Southern California for her book. Published in uh, 2017 through our friends at the University of North Carolina Press, Uh, the name of the book, Recaptured Africans, Surviving Slave Ships, Detention and Dislocation in the Final Years of the Slave Trade. And so once again, thank you for your time. And uh, until next time, new books in African-American studies listeners. My name is Adam McNeil, your host.